Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining Law Matters. Our guest today is Elizabeth Nielsen, attorney for the Derek Shavens appeals case in the Minnesota Supreme Court. Elizabeth, can you hear me? Yes, I can, Sherry. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the history of what's going on. Yeah, so Derek Chauvin, everyone knows his name as the police officer who was convicted of second-degree felony murder for the killing of George Floyd at the end of May in 2020. And that was the event that set off a summer of unrest, riots, and protests um, throughout our nation, but especially in the city of Minneapolis and in the city of St. Paul. Um, And in March of 2021, Derek Chauvin's criminal trial began. Now, his criminal trial attorney, his name was Eric Nelson, um, and that trial lasted about a month, and in April, a jury convicted Derek Chauvin of second-degree felony murder, uh, which is a murder charge that exists when someone uh, is found to have committed a, an underlying felony that caused a death. So the predicate felony under that charge was third-degree assault. Later, by a judge, uh, Derek was sentenced to 270 months in prison. That's 22 years. Now, uh, Derek, Derek's trial counsel, Eric Nelson, was his attorney for trial, but Derek Chauvin needed a new attorney for appeal, uh, someone that focused on appellate issues. So my boss, Bill Mormon, bravely stepped in and said, you know what, our firm, Mormon, Cardell, and Erickson will take the case for appeal, and we'll, we'll bring it up. And uh, I came in to work for Bill back in September and started working on the appeal right away. At that time, we were working on an appeal to the Minnesota Court of Appeals, and that um, process included an original brief that was back in April of of 2022. I largely wrote a a good portion of the reply brief, and that was filed in October. And then just how the process works, there was oral argument in January of just earlier this year with my boss. Uh, Bill Mormon arguing on behalf of Derek Chauvin, and the state of Minnesota brought in um, uh, an attorney named Neil Cattall, who has himself argued in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, um, I, I want to say it's 40 times or more, oh, wow. and was a GQ man of the year. So they, they brought out some big guns from Washington, D.C. to argue on behalf of the state of Minnesota. Um, and then the Minnesota Appellate Court issued its decision 90 days later, which was uh, April um, 17th, 2023, just uh, over a month ago now. And the appellate court ended up affirming the trial court on every single issue. So that means that our next step was to petition the Minnesota Supreme Court to hear the case. So that's where we're at now. So tell me, walk me through this process of going through this petition. I know there's some limitations, but in in the layman's mind, they want to go through the details of the case, and that's not necessarily what's happening. You're talking procedural. 
That's right. So I think a lot of people see from what they've heard or, you know, maybe new views of the autopsy report I've even seen on Twitter recently. They, they think, you know, these facts just didn't come out right at the trial. And maybe that's the case. Maybe that's true. But trial courts, the lower courts, are the courts where people hear the facts. And that's where the jury is supposed to hear the evidence and then make a decision applying the law to the facts. But on appeal, the appellate court isn't going to relitigate the trial. They can't look at every single fact. Appellate courts, including Supreme Courts, are largely courts of error. So they're looking for procedural problems or questions of if the judge really made serious mistakes in his rulings. So the core questions that we're looking at now aren't whether or not George Floyd, his cause of death was drug overdose or heart problems or anything like that. What we're looking at is, did Derek Chauvin get a fair trial? Did he get the due process that our Constitution requires that every criminal defendant should get? And so that's really what we're looking at here. Well, I always thought it was trial by media. I mean, you've got people rioting in the streets, uh, threatening death, you know, bodily harm to the people who are involved with the trial, the juror, the judge, and all this chaos going on. How could they get a free trial? Did they sequester the jury? I don't remember. Well, they didn't. So, and that's really part of the core question of, of what we're asking. So... Legally, when when someone commits a crime, most of the time you would just hold a criminal trial in the venue or the county where the crime was alleged to have occurred. Now, for this, the the death of George Floyd happened in Minneapolis. So just normally you would have the trial here in Hennepin County, which is the county where Minneapolis is. Um, right across the river, there's St. Paul and Ramsey County. But normally you'd have the trial here in Hennepin County. And you know what? That's what happened. But because of all of that publicity, that, as you said, there's a sense that maybe this was trial by media, trial by public opinion. Um, so really, Derek, with his original criminal trial, his counsel moved the court, asked the court over and over and over again, we need to move the venue out of Hennepin County away from Minneapolis to somewhere else, because we don't think he can get a fair trial with an impartial jury here in this community because of of the, well, many things. There was the media publicity. Um, the The publicity here never stopped. There were stories in the local papers, um, the news, every single day. Well, you had politicians out there, you know, spewing propaganda, too, and, you know, trying to stir up the crowd. And they did a good job. Well, you know, it seems that way. Um, I mean, you had local local politicians, and then you even had, uh, you know, politicians from other places, other states, coming in and and flagging that there should be unrest if Derek was acquitted. Um, But from from the beginning, 
Derek was asking to move the trial. And actually, um, the the Minnesota criminal procedure rules have a rule that if in any locality where normally you would have a trial, if there's a reason to think that a, a trial couldn't be fair in that venue, well, the rules of criminal procedure here in Minnesota say the trial venue must be moved, but they didn't move it. Um, and then just by our U.S. Constitution, there are a couple different ways where the U.S. Supreme Court has looked at it in the past, where they would say, well, due process requires that you have to move a venue to somewhere else, somewhere where you have a better shot at getting a fair trial. And they, they've set up this kind of two-tiered system. But I'll, I'll get into that in a little bit. First, I want to explain to the audience a little bit about what we had to do to get this petition in. So when we took the, the case to the Minnesota Court of Appeals, we could appeal on many, many different issues. Um, you know, we thought there were several mistakes, perhaps, that the trial court had made, uh, pieces of evidence that didn't get let in. And I know you had you had Bill Mormon on a few months ago to talk about some of those. Yeah. Um, you know, there was there was a photo of training that was given to Minneapolis police that showed them using the same sort of knee on back and lower neck restraint that, that Derek Chauvin had used with George Floyd. That photo was excluded from evidence. Um, there were, you know, there was, there was possibly another witness um, who was allowed to exercise his own Fifth Amendment rights to refuse to testify in this case, because if he had testified um, about Chauvin and, and Floyd, he might have incriminated himself. Um, and, and so we argued, well, maybe he should have been made to testify or at least limited testimony. Yeah. Um, you know, there were some issues like that. There were, um, some issues where some sidebar conversations weren't transcribed. So it makes it hard to figure out what happened in those conversations. Um, so there were several things like that, it, even, the uh, state was allowed to present expert testimony from a large number of police officers, basically the equivalent of expert testimony regarding what they thought was reasonable use of force. Um, but here's the thing. The Minnesota Supreme Court is very limiting on what they want to take and what they want to hear as a petition. So in the first place, they don't have to take our petition. They can choose not to hear his case. And if that happens, you know, well, um, generally in our system, if a state Supreme Court makes a decision or doesn't want to hear something, then the U.S. Supreme Court um, would be the final way to appeal. Um, we'll see what the Minnesota Supreme Court decides to do here. But even then... For a petition, they have rules. We had a 2,000-word limit. And when you're talking about a lot of things that we think went wrong with the trial, we really had to be careful uh, and be selective 
about what issues we thought would be the most legally juicy, what would have the highest impact, because the the uh, rules of appellate procedure in the state even say, like, these are the kinds of things that the Supreme Court in the state wants to look for. This is what they care about. They want stuff that's going to impact more than just the individual case. Uh, they want to be able to answer questions that are going to resolve statewide legal issues or conflicts between maybe U.S. Supreme Court law versus uh, how the state has been dealing with things. So we had to pick those kind of issues. I know you you said that you're limited to 2,000 words. And I'm thinking about this case. You could write a book <laughs> everything that went wrong and all the evidence and you know just how screwed up this case was going before this court and they were very selective about the evidence that was coming in they denied evidence that i think would be important in fact we have a a photo on our website from the training manual showing a person law enforcement with a knee on the shoulder and it looks like he's on the neck but he's not he's on the shoulder and that's the way they were trained and why would right. I think that's significant? Why wouldn't that be allowed in? Right. Well, so that that particular piece of evidence, it wasn't allowed in in this case, in this trial, because they couldn't prove that officer that Derek Chauvin as an officer had actually seen that particular photograph. Seen now, that? <laughs> he had been he had been an officer for the Minneapolis Police Department for nearly 20 years. Yeah. He had had that training for many years, but because they couldn't show that he had seen that particular training, the the judge wouldn't allow that photograph in. Now, our argument to the Minnesota appellate court was that that it shows that it's a reasonable officer um, who would use that technique, uh, but it turns out. Um, you know the the appellate court didn't didn't uh, agree with our argument, and we ended up not being able to address that issue for the Minnesota Supreme Court because uh, the standard of review that the court has to look at that for uh, an evidentiary decision is is really comes down to whether or not the judge abused his discretion, um, which is a a difficult thing to prove. Um, appellate courts are very deferential to trial judges, and there are good reasons for that uh, a lot of the time. You know, a, a trial judge is there in the room. They know all the – they're supposed to know all the intricacies of, of the particular case that a, an appellate court just can't know because they weren't there. Um, but, in, you know, that ended up being one of the it's, – it's a compelling thing. And our goal is to get Derek Chauvin a new trial in a fairer venue with a real impartial jury. And then we would hope that at that new trial, that that sort of evidence would be able to come in. Do you think with um, some of these politicians that flocked to Minnesota and stirred up the crowd, do you think they were tampering with the trial? Can they be held accountable for their actions? Well, you know, that that's a decision that someone else would, would have to make. Um, I think an argument might be made for that, but, you know, you could, you could argue maybe some of that was intimidation of jurors. 
But here's the thing. Uh, technically, after jurors were selected, and here in this case, jury selection started in March of 2021, uh, the jurors were instructed not to watch the news or read newspapers or, you know, go on websites that they were likely to run into news. And, you know, you and I sitting here might kind of find that puzzling. Uh, that's a standard thing that jurors are asked to do. Uh, they are but not during a riot. And they're rioting outside their doors. Well, and that's that's kind of where there's a problem. <laughs> um, and so, you know, as we're we're flagging this even to the the Minnesota Supreme Court, even in limited words, we we're, we're bringing up again. Remember, judges, that here in this venue in this locality. These are people in in this local community in Hennepin County in Minneapolis. They saw, beginning in 2020, in the summer of 2020, they saw nearly a half billion dollars of property damage done in their local community. Now, it's, it's kind of, I feel personally a little distanced from it because I wasn't living in the Twin Cities at the time. So just like you and just like most of this audience, I didn't see that with my own eyes. I saw pictures. Right. But these jurors, those were people who lived here. They were experiencing it. Right. They were part of this community. And, you know, then you have the, the continuous publicity throughout the time. And and here I want to try to expand on what the idea of publicity really means. There's, there's the media. But beyond that, when you're experiencing that in your own neighborhood or in, you know, maybe it's not your neighborhood, but maybe it's a few streets away or, you know, a couple miles or it's a, a line of shops you used to visit and now windows are boarded up, um, shops are closed businesses are done permanently because they they were just destroyed that's got to make an impact on someone yeah um i i just can't imagine that it wouldn't um and then you had people rebuilding you know uh, as best they could in the out and throughout those months and there, there wasn't really a lot of time like i'm seeing being a newcomer to the twin cities still there's rebuilding being done, and maybe a lot of the the worst damage is repaired, but there are still a lot of places with just empty shops, um, places where people didn't come back, and whether or not that was because um, the place was physically ruined or, you know, if it was due to COVID, that's hard for me to know. Um, but the, the community is still experiencing some of the, the results. So, I want to say that the the publicity here was pervasive, not just a lot of it. It had a physical impact on this community. And so all of the jurors who could even be in that pool are from the community. And, And what you really come down to with the due process issue with venue is whether or not it's even possible to get an impartial jury. Now, the trial court and the appellate court agreed with the trial court. They said that the jury was fine because the jury, every single member that sat, was able to testify that they could be fair. 
I don't see how that can be true because there was one person who was out protesting on the stage with uh, Al Sharpton protesting and bragging and, you know, that he had an effect on this whole case. How can how can they be impartial? Well, and so the U.S. Supreme Court has said in this case uh, called skilling, um, it was actually about the one of the Enron defendants. So, you know, it's it's been a few years since that happened, but it was the last kind of big case that looked at venue issues in the U.S. Supreme Court that really laid out what you're supposed to look at. And, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court in Skilling said, when you're looking at the venue issue and whether or not the court should have presumed prejudice in the jury pool, it's because you just have to presume that the the jurors can't be honest about their ability to be to to tell the truth or to look at the evidence objectively um, objectively and and let's go ahead let's you brought him up uh let's talk about juror number 52 so this is one of the issues that we thought was important enough to bring up uh to the Minnesota Supreme Court so as you said, there was this juror who sat, and he was one of the jurors who made the decision to convict Derek Chauvin on, on, on all counts. Um, that particular juror had traveled to Washington, D.C. Now, that's over a thousand miles between Minneapolis and Washington, D.C. He had traveled to participate in a march that was titled the Get Your Knees Off Our Necks March, yeah. in direct reference to the exact situation of Derek Chauvin and George Floyd. Now, that juror had been asked several questions. So in, in a criminal trial, or really in any trial that has a jury, they're going to ask questions, uh, both sides, both the Defense and the prosecution are going to ask the juror questions in something that's called voir dire. And voir dire is something that is under oath. So, you know, they, they, the jurors promise to tell the, the truth and nothing but the truth, and they promise to be forthcoming in their answers. And Juror 52, just like every other juror, was issued a questionnaire. And, you know, if members of your audience have ever served jury duty, they probably got something similar. This was a really long questionnaire. I mean, they they had a lot of questions. Um, and, And the jurors, even before they were called into court, were asked to fill out this questionnaire. And then they only called in potential jurors who kind of... From their written responses, it looked like maybe they could be they could be real jurors. Um, but in that questionnaire, juror fifty two answered no to a question that asked, "Have you ever helped support or advocated in favor of or against police reform?" He answered no. But if you go to the website of that, get your knees off our next March. They're talking about police reform right there in the description of the event. Right. Um, And, you know, this was an event he had to have registered for. Wow. Was he a plant? 
Well, you know, we have no way of knowing at this point. And so here in the state of Minnesota, there's something called a Schwartz hearing. Now, a Schwartz hearing is supposed to be held when after a trial, some evidence comes to light that's new and fresh that wasn't known before trial, where you believe that a juror may have committed misconduct. Now, not being honest in a jury questionnaire or during jury voir dire where a juror is asked questions by a judge, you know, there in the courtroom, all under sworn oath, um, you know, lying in that would be, or, or being misleading in that could be evidence of juror misconduct. So a Schwartz hearing is supposed to investigate whether or not juror misconduct actually happened. Well, and I'm just a bystander, post- but I think he lied. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it seems it seems that way. Uh, but the the point is there in a post trial motion, uh, Eric Nelson, Derek's um, trial counsel, asked for a Schwartz hearing because it was really quick after the trial had ended when Juror Fifty Two actually went out in public uh, and discussed on podcasts. Uh, his experience of having served on the jury and he was bragging about, about it. participation in yep. this march. Um, so it became public knowledge, but yet the judge declined to have a Schwartz hearing to even investigate. And I mean, legally, you're only supposed to have to show prima facie evidence. That means, you know, just base level not a lot of evidence, just a little bit, yeah. um, which standing on alone and unchallenged would support finding juror misconduct. And then the judge is supposed to grant a Schwartz hearing. And that, that, you know, that's just a step. But he declined to even take that step. Because he's afraid of more riots and burning and looting and, and threats. Why? Why would he decline that? That was perjury, right? Well, so perjury is a is another criminal offense, and that would have to be brought, you know, by by um, you know government officials who are responsible for that sort of thing. But um, you know, the the judge gave his reasons. Uh, he he thought that maybe um, the motion for the Schwartz hearing didn't highlight the evidence sufficiently. Um, But here, the question that we're bringing in front of the Minnesota Supreme Court is, if you can really say no to a Schwartz hearing here, what does that do with our Sixth Amendment right of the U.S. Constitution to trial by an impartial jury? So is, is this, if the trial court judge is right, and the Minnesota Court of Appeals is right that the trial court judge was right, is Minnesota's court standards for granting a Schwartz hearing constitutionally deficient is really what we're asking the Minnesota Supreme Court to look at here. Um, because it, it seems it doesn't pass what uh, lawyers like to call it the laugh test um, sometimes, where if you explain something to just even a layperson and, and they just can't believe it, or they might laugh at it a little bit. Um, that That's at least what it seems like to me. 
but, you know, we'll see. We'll see if the Minnesota Supreme Court thinks that that's interesting enough to address. Um well, it would be but, interesting enough for me to address. I'm, you know, like I said, I'm I'm out here, you know, I'm in Arizona, you're in Minnesota, and I'm looking at all the stuff that's happening in this case, and I'm like, wow, they, they got trial by media, and in my head, and this is before I even talked to uh, Bill about anything, when I saw that young man with Al Sharpton on the stage bragging, I thought, my God, he was a plant. How could he not have been a plant? <laughs> it's like, I, but we don't want to start that rumor. So we don't know. There's no, obviously there's no evidence. So if he is granted a new trial, do you take the trial or is the trial given to somebody else? Well, that decision hasn't been made yet. You know, okay. I think it's, um, our law firm does both some trial work and appellate work, but, uh, you know, it, it, it those are those are decisions that come later, and where we're at right now is you eat the elephant one bite at a time, right? <laughs> so <laughs> true that. <laughs> so as we go through the process and we're appealing to these courts, we're just trying to do our best job um, to make the core issues as clear as possible, and to argue the best we can for for Derek and. Really, the issues that we're bringing to the court have the potential to impact every criminal defendant in the state, if not the country, um, and every police officer that serves in the state of Minnesota. Oh, absolutely, it does. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few. Daylight is fading and the temperature is dropping. You are not only cold, hungry, and lost in a densely wooded area, you're injured. Time is of the essence. Sarsi is a highly trained team of dedicated volunteers who work closely with Pima County Search and Rescue to help people in critical situations just like this. To join an exclusive team of heroes, go to sarsi.org. That's S-A-R-C-I dot org. We need your knowledge, experience, and of course, your generous spirit. To report suspected human trafficking, please call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center at 1-888-373-7888 or text HELP or INFO to 233-733. To learn more about Homeland Security investigations and our efforts to combat human trafficking, please visit our website at www.ice.gov or check out the DHS Blue Campaign at www.dhs.gov slash blue campaign. For more information on the Southern Arizona Anti-Trafficking Unified Response Network, please visit us at www.saturn.org or find us on Facebook. Saving lives means staying informed. Knowing the dangers of using counterfeit prescription pills can help those you care about and keep our community safe. As a parent, educator, neighbor, or friend, we all play a role in building safe and healthy futures for ourselves and our loved ones. Do your part. Take the first step today. Visit GetSmartAboutDrugs.com to access education, prevention, and treatment resources. Counterfeit prescription pills laced with fentanyl are deadly. Be their protector. Be informed. Visit GetSmartAboutDrugs.com. Okay, we're back, and we are talking with Elizabeth Nielsen. She's part of the team for Derek Shaven's appeals uh, case in Minnesota Supreme Court. And 
What do we need to know? Tell me, tell me more. We've got like pages and pages of stuff here that I've been going <laughs> over. Where yeah. do we go from here? All right. So we've, we've already talked a little bit about how really we believe that under the U.S. Constitution, uh, Sixth Amendment right to due process and the U.S. Supreme Court's scaling decision, the venue of the trial should have been moved away from Minneapolis to somewhere else where a juror and a jury could be impartial. And we talked about how one of the jurors had attended a protest march in Washington, D.C. that was specifically about the events of George Floyd and Derek Chauvin. So um, with, with that venue issue there, I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court has said that courts even examining trials on appeal um, should have to look at the totality of the circumstances of the trial. So everything that went on, they really should look at all of the damage that we talked about just a few minutes ago. And they should grant a new trial because the trial court should have just presumed that the jury pool was so prejudiced that they couldn't be honest. And we talked a little bit about... um, Jury sequestration. Uh, you know, I can't. I can't speak today. Uh, sequestration. <laughs> so that would be when a jury. You know, maybe they're they're kept apart from the general public, even their families, um, in a hotel or or something like that, just so they can't see the news. Uh, they can't see. Can't the be influenced. World, right? And and it's supposed to help prevent jury intimidation and. Uh, prevent influence. But here, they didn't do anything extraordinary. So in any trial, it doesn't even have to be a criminal trial. If you have jurors, well, they're going to be sequestered during deliberation. Now, in Derek's trial, the deliberation was really quick. I mean, sure, they were sequestered for a couple hours uh, on the deliberation day, but that that was it. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe the venue issue could have been mitigated a little bit had the jurors been sequestered. Maybe yeah. the venue might have been better had they allowed for more time. But, but let me tell you something about that. Now, the Minnesota courts had actually been closed for COVID, and they started jury voir dire, so they started picking the jury before the Minnesota courts were even open again. So Derek Chauvin kept asking, let's delay this trial. Let's let some of the heat and the passions in the community cool off uh, because, you know, if you keep refusing to move it, maybe that'll make it better. But, you know, the court didn't do that, and it actually made Derek Chauvin's trial the first one. again, beginning before the court was even open from its COVID closure. So that that's what we're dealing with as far as those issues. Um, it's like they did now, everything they could to, to try to get it over with, and they didn't take into consideration that, you know, he has rights too. Right. And, you know, every criminal defendant has rights. So that's where you really get into these ideas where, You know, here we've got a really high-profile case, 
everyone knows, if they don't know Derek Chauvin's name, they, they know the name of George Floyd. And they think they know what happened because they saw clips of videos. Um, Very misleading. And, you know, it, and and I think so. You know, there's the proverb that says you hear a first man speak and you uh, you think you know what happened. And then someone else comes along and cross-examines him. And then you realize that wasn't really... And you know what, I've seen that a lot in the last couple of years. It's like, you know, something will happen and, you know, the mayor, the governor, the somebody will get on TV and they'll make a statement and everything's horrific. And then after they investigate and look at all the video and all the tapes or whatever is available for evidence, they go, oh, well, I guess we weren't right. Well, damage is already done. Right. You've influenced people and you've, you know, tampered with the jury pool. So, yeah, I, I'm i with you on right. that. But, you know, maybe maybe a cooling period could have helped. Maybe um, jury sequestration could have helped because, I mean, jurors saw razor wire, barbed wire fence around the courthouse. They saw military personnel. Yeah, they were bugged in from a, a secret location um, to even get to the, the government center where the court was. Um, so... While there were extraordinary security measures, there wasn't extraordinary procedures, if that makes sense. And in fact, um, with with speeding the trial to have it start before the the COVID closure was over for the court, it just it looks really strange. So well, it was like the that's the venue, the, yeah the. National Guard were called in and they had all this security. It was like they were protecting the courthouse from being torched and looted like the rest of the city was being, but they didn't bother to protect the case. Right. And, and you know, it maybe, maybe that's what we're dealing with here. Um, it certainly looks like that, that may be what happened um, because I think it, it just makes sense to fear a bad outcome if the jury acquitted Derek on, on any of the counts. Now, that, that kind of brings me into what was Derek actually convicted of? So he was convicted of felony murder, which is a second-degree murder in, in the state of Minnesota here. Um, and even this particular brand of it was second-degree unintentional felony murder. Now, in legal scholarship, just to get a tiny bit nerdy on you, it's already kind of dubious to convict someone of murder when they didn't have any intent to kill someone. Right. Um, And a lot of legal scholars have had trouble with felony murder for a long time for that reason, because we have this kind of two- main elements of any crime. You've got the actus reus, which is the guilty act or the culpable act, and the mens rea, which is supposed to be the guilty mind, the state of mind which any criminal defendant um, would have to have been found beyond a reasonable doubt to have a certain state of mind, an intent uh, to do the harm that makes it a crime. You need both. So with felony murder, 
you don't have to have any intent to have caused a death. But you can get someone on felony murder if they are found to have caused the death while committing a predicate felony. So for Derek Chauvin, the predicate felony that he was convicted of was third-degree assault. Now, in Minnesota, third-degree assault requires only intent to touch, not to harm, and but, but a harm happens. Now, that's, that's kind of an extra dubious thing, too, because a lot of states uh, apply something called merger. So they would say uh, you can't convict someone of felony murder for assault because maybe the mens rea of someone committing assault is only to commit assault. They didn't mean to go that far. So a lot of states, in fact, I think it's the majority of states, wouldn't count any kind of assault for felony murder in the first place. So Minnesota is an outlier on that one. Um, But here you have third-degree assault, only intent to touch. Well, police officers, part of their job is to effect lawful arrests. Now, Derek Chauvin came on the scene while the arrest was already in progress. And he, being a more senior police officer, uh, was assisting more junior police officers in effecting a, a lawful arrest. Um, and even the appellate court agreed this it, it, wasn't a, it was a lawful arrest. Um, and, you know, a police officer has to generally touch people while effecting a lawful arrest. So... What makes that then a crime for a police officer? Well, that goes to what is objectively reasonable. Now, objectively reasonable doesn't have anything to do with what's in the head of an individual officer at the given time. It is asking what would a fictitious, reasonable officer do in that situation at that time? Um, given those circumstances. But it it doesn't actually have to get in to Derek Chauvin's mind because a police officer being a law enforcement officer um, doesn't commit assault by effecting a lawful arrest. It's only assault if it's later found to be unreasonable use of force. Well, that's an objective standard, and it doesn't have to do anything with what was in his head at the time. And in, the court didn't have to show that he was trying to be unreasonable. They just have to show that later enough people thought that he was. You know what? I When Bill was on the show several months ago, I think it was last year even, um, I asked him, did George Floyd take that fistful of pills illegal drugs he was trying to get rid of the evidence before Derek got there so Derek didn't know this guy consumed all these drugs mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know in the in the scheme of things George Floyd really killed himself <laughs> and I don't I don't I didn't see the autopsy I don't know what the autopsy says 
but it would seem that you know that something like that should be taken into consideration. The man had this suicidal lifestyle. He he was just you know a career criminal. And he wanted to get rid of the evidence because he didn't want to go to jail. Well, it ended up killing him. And Derek had no way of knowing that because that happened before he got there. Yeah, I mean, maybe so. And if Derek gets a new trial, that is all evidence and and arguments that should be made in front of an impartial jury. And they should be able to apply the law to the facts. But here we even have a problem, I, I think, from our perspective and the arguments that we're making in the law itself. Because when yeah. you apply this to a police officer, so this this impacts more than just Derek Chauvin's it's case. It impacts the every police officer. Well, perhaps across the country, but certainly in Minnesota, because Minnesota is already an outlier in allowing assault to be a predicate felony for a charge of murder. Um but here you you have no subjective intent, no mens rea to be unreasonable beyond what any officer would be doing. And if that touch is later found to be unreasonable, then then an officer could get convicted of felony murder. For just doing their job. So, like, let's abstract it a little bit from Derek Chauvin's case. Say that there's someone just arresting someone um, at the side of the road, and while they're putting the handcuffs on, the the arrestee is really nervous and they have a heart attack. Well, I mean, technically, if something about what the officer arrest and handcuff placement was is later found to be unreasonable then that officer could be convicted of felony murder, too. Uh, And, you know, it's hard to spin out facts that are just hypothetical, but um, that's what what this gives us, um, is is basically it, it is now possible for convicting someone of murder with no subjective intent even to harm someone at all. Yeah, no, he was doing, from what I saw, he did what he was trained to do. And, you know, he he was doing his job just like any other officer. I just, in the outcome of this um, request for a retrial, will that have any impact or effect on the other officers? You know, not directly, uh, probably. Um, But as far as the other officers... I mean, I, I'm not involved with their legal cases. I've been following them kind of on the periphery. Um, uh, from my understanding, uh, I, I believe two of them pled. Um, and then one other one actually did go to trial and was found guilty. Um, and, and not of the same offenses that Derek was, was found on. Um, if new evidence genuinely new evidence would come to light maybe they would have some uh, so have some recourse i'm not sure though that any of this would directly impact the other officers okay what do you i understand the state of minnesota doesn't use narcan since this case happened have they reconsidered narcan as uh, something that officers and emergency personnel should have on their person to help people like george floyd (laughs) 
You know, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but uh, I know it's been helpful in other states. Oh, uh, state of Arizona, they use yeah. it all the time. Everybody has it. Officers, you know, uh, firefighters, everybody carries Narcan for situations mm-hmm. like the George Floyd thing. And it certainly seems like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, it it does seem like a good idea. So if they move the, the case, where would they move it to? Well, you know, that's a that's a question also kind of for later down the road. But um, if we had our way, it would probably be moved just somewhere else in Minnesota away from the Twin Cities. Like North Home? Um, so. <laughs> I've got family well, in North Home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe so. Um, virtually, though, any county that's not Hennepin County or Ramsey County would have a better shot at getting a impartial jury, um, in a, and that would be a, a much fairer venue, just because no other community other than Ramsey County and Hennepin County with the Twin Cities in them, no other location in Minnesota had the same kind of pervasive publicity that the Twin Cities had. And again, by pervasive, I'm not just talking about a lot of media coverage because, I mean, we were in different parts of the country at the time than Minnesota, both of us. And yet, you know, we both saw news stories a lot. Uh, But I'm talking about the pervasive publicity of the physical impact that that had on Ramsey and Hennepin County. So, yeah, people lost their businesses. Yeah. Yeah. And and any other venue besides the Twin Cities uh, would be better and have a much better chance at getting a fair trial and constitutional due process. So I I don't remember. Were there cameras in the courtroom? No, I I I didn't watch uh, the trial myself, but I think if I recall correctly, there were. Um, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, I don't remember either. If you get a new trial, would there be cameras in the courtroom? You know, I think this is one of those things. Um, a judge would have to make that decision. But I think probably people would still be so interested in this case uh, that there may be, maybe. Yeah, I think, you know, court TV. So, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think he deserves uh, a new trial. I think all of them should have a new trial personally, because I don't think what happened was was their fault. And somebody right. wants to you know, overdose themselves on drugs. That's their personal decision. And have you read the autopsy? So, again, I I have glanced at it. But it's not, not, is it a matter of public record, the autopsy? I I believe so. Um, And you know what? The state of Minnesota court is aware that this is a, you know, it's an important case to a lot of people. So they've actually dedicated a page on their website to uh, the Derek Chauvin criminal proceedings. And your listeners can go and, and Google Derek Chauvin, Minnesota court, and that page will probably pop up. And a lot of 
the court documents will be easily accessible to them. I know I've seen recently, even just on Twitter, a lot of renewed discussion of the autopsy reports. Again, those are things, though, that you got to eat the elephant one bite at a time. Yeah, first you have to get, you get a new trial. trial and, and then, you know what, you need experts who can analyze those autopsy reports and present their expert opinions on what they believe was the real cause of death. Um, and then, you know, you'll have experts on the reasonable use of force um, and and all sorts of experts. And you know, it takes a lot of bravery on a case like this um, to be an expert who is willing to testify in on behalf of the defense, just because um, the this nature. case has been so major. And, you know, it depends who you talk to, but, uh, you know, it it's contentious. Yes. Um, and so you need those guys to be ready for when, when, a, when and if a new trial gets granted. Have you um, ever heard of another case where the court actually has a page dedicated to that case? Where you can go on the and say, "Here's a, here's their case," and they have a whole page dedicated to Derek. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I imagine, like, if there had been internet that was more accessible when OJ's trial was going on, that uh, that would have been a good idea because people would be interested. Um, is I, you know, other high-profile cases where. It would just be easier for the court to just put the documents out there. Here's the um, truth instead of the propaganda that you're hearing in the media. Here's well, here's and the even case. even just to not have to keep answering the question over and over, over and over again. Exactly. You know, the phone's um, ringing. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Uh, so I mean, they know they're aware, but I'm hoping, you know, this this appeal with the Minnesota Supreme Court that they will take it because they have the option of whether or not to take this petition and that they will give a good hard look at the issues, the venue issue, the juror issue, whether or not they should investigate misconduct, um, whether or not they really believe that it's right um, and how they want our system to work to apply felony murder based on third-degree assault to police officers who then don't have a subjective guilty state of mind uh, at all and raise those to murder charges. Um, something we didn't talk about, and I think we're running out of time, but, oh, yeah. uh, but um, you know, we're also appealing on the aggravating factors that they sentenced Derek Chauvin to um, 10 extra years. Um, based on a couple aggravating factors that maybe hadn't been applied this way before. 20 seconds. There's a lot for them to look at. Yeah, there is. And hopefully they will look at it and give him a new trial. And if they don't, that's shame on them because that's injustice. So thank you, Elizabeth, for coming on the show and explaining all this to us. And until next week, shop local and stay safe.